This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Who knew that such a simple move as having some resonance in taxpayers determine how to spend tax money could drive elected leaders to the brink of insanity? we got two stories about that we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Leila Atassi, and Courtney Astafi, who will be here for the rest of the week. Thank you, Courtney. Let's begin with not the story I was talking about. We'll get to that in a minute. This is a bigger one. Monday was the big day when we were to learn whether Ohio would actually allow drilling for oil and gas under state parks. One of the dumbest ideas to come out of our government probably ever. Layla, what did they decide? Yes, indeed. They were supposed to decide yesterday, but the Ohio the Ohio Oil and Gas Land Management Commission delayed that decision after a very combative and sometimes raucous meeting that was just packed with protesters. They haven't set a date, but they're going to gather again to try to make a decision on whether to open the four parks in question to bidders for drilling. Those parks are Salt Fork State Park, Wolf Run State Park, Valley Run Wildlife Area, and Zeppernick Wildlife Area. Reporter Jake Zuckerman tells us that Monday's meeting really fell apart as the commissioners were struggling over how to adopt land protections that were recommended by the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, whether and how to solicit more stakeholder feedback on those changes and stuff like that. But but by and large, the commissioners seemed very eager to get drilling underway at the parks. They, they said, really, in no uncertain terms, that it's about time the state gets its land leasing program underway, given that the state legislature passed a law last year forcing it into effect. But that position was really far out of step with the views of the dozens of citizens in attendance, some of whom were yelling things like, you know, why would you do this? <laughs> uh, in the end, the commission delayed ruling on the state lands owned by the Department of Natural Resources, but they did grant a handful of applications to drill under roadways owned by the Department of Transportation. We are really living now in the age of the overlords. I, most normal people would not ever abide drilling under state parks. They're pristine. They're state parks for a reason. We set them aside to preserve them and so people can enjoy nature. And yet the elected officials with their super majorities are forcing this down Ohio's throats. The people that showed up to protest, they're the common sense people. Mm -hmm. Add to that our discovery by, by Jake Zuckerman that all sorts of letters that were sent in favor of this are bogus, right. that they are not from people whose signatures appear on them. This whole thing stinks. You, I keep waiting for Mike DeWine to show something here, to step up and say, let's put this whole thing on hold. This stinks to the high heavens. We shouldn't have residents of Ohio questioning what we're doing. And it's the state parks. Right, right. And, and that issue of the questionable public comments that came in, uh, that turned out to have been attributed to people who say they didn't consent to their name being attached to such a thing. That that really hung over this meeting, it seems. The opponents of the land leases told the commission that they should respond to that scandal by rejecting the drilling requests. But the commission seemed to believe that they weren't in a position to do that, given that the legislature established this program and they were you know, putting, putting it into action. 
However, part of, part of the process of determining whether to grant the land leases is to take public comment into account. If those pro-drilling comments were not gathered in good faith, and if you have a giant group of people standing before you protesting the program, then aren't they bound by law to take all of that into consideration and that they could find grounds for them to reject these requests? <laughs> it was hilarious as their attitude was, well, there's nothing we can do about that. It's like, that's your whole purpose. Yeah. That's why you are here. What's the point of this get... commission if they yeah, have no I mean, power whatsoever right, right. over this? Yeah. Yeah. It was one of those, we're washing our hands of the phony public comments because that's not our business. And like you said, your job is to get comments. If you have been the victim of some sort of deception, you should get to the bottom of that before you make your decisions. Right. The whole thing, it stinks, but it's a product of where we stand in Ohio right now, mm -hmm. where the people don't really matter. If you put this up to a vote, if you said, hey, Ohio, should we drill for oil and gas under state parks? I bet you'd have 85 to 90 percent votes. No. But we're doing it anyway because the people in Columbus think they know better than the rest of us. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We got two more stories very much in the vein that the overlords know what's best for the voters and the voters shouldn't have a say. Let's start with Cleveland City Council Democrats who are fumbling over themselves now, particularly the council president, because of what would have been one of the most underhanded moves I've ever seen to stop the will of the voters. Courtney, it was kind of a pinball bouncing around yesterday. What happened and where did it end up? Yeah, it was a bit of a roller coaster. Yesterday was city council's first meeting back after summer recess. And when I logged in, I found this legislation that was teed up to, to be introduced last night. It was sponsored solely, it said, by Council President Blaine Griffin. And it would have explicitly given the council president or someone acting on his behalf the authority to spend public taxpayer money advocating for or against, you know, ballot measures. And of course, the big elephant in the room here is this upcoming vote on the people's budget, the idea that we want to bring participatory budgeting to Cleveland. And that proposal uh, involves about 2% of the general fund. City Council is, is very adamantly against it. Blaine Griffin is adamantly against it, as is Mayor Justin Bibb. And Griffin brought forth this legislation, you know, later in the day, they said this wasn't necessarily just just tied to the people's budget. Council members had questions about spending public money, advocating for other issues. But the people's budget is looming large in this conversation because it's the upcoming vote. And this law, had it moved through council, would have explicitly given the council president authority to spend taxpayer money advocating essentially, you know, in this case, it would be against the people's budget. And there was a whirlwind. Um, you know, the news went out yesterday. We heard some blistering words from Councilwoman Rebecca Marr about this proposal coming from her own from her own body, the, the council president. And then, you know, midway through the day, we got a statement from council saying it had been yanked. It wasn't going to be introduced. It wasn't going to be rushed through for passage on that first reading last night as had been planned. And and then we had a conversation with Blaine Griffin about why he pulled this. And, and it kind of goes back to what he was describing as conflicting advice from the law department. But the big takeaway here was that the the position was coming away from this. Well, we don't need this legislation to spend public money. We're already allowed to do that under existing case law. And which 
they shouldn't do, right? I mean, the parallels to issue one are amazing here. In issue one, the Republicans in Columbus are trying to convince voters, you really don't have the, the, the right wisdom to determine what should be in the Constitution. You should leave that to us. So give away your rights. They claimed it was from outside interests, but the whole thing was to stop Ohioans from having the power to change their Constitution. It was ridiculous. The, the government power emanates from the voters. This is so similar. I mean, there's a bunch of people that want citizens to have some control over the budgeting. Whether you agree with it or not, it's going to the ballot and the voters will decide. And they're put, trying to put their thumb on the scale. They're so desperate to stop this that they were going to pass this law. It blew up in their faces because it's autocracy in the extreme. So they pulled it back because they were getting blitzed. It was amazing how fast the emails started flying on this yesterday when it popped up. There was a lot of people that weren't happy about yeah, it. Yeah, it was a jaw dropper. And after so after Griffin made the decision not to pursue this, you know, talk to him. And, and I, you know, he was talking about whether this was legal and what case law controlled and what advice they were getting from their lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. But I kind of put the question to him, okay, well, whatever the legalities are, whatever the case law says you can and can't do with taxpayer dollars on this, what do you say to Clevelanders who just get icked out by the idea of public officials wanting to use taxpayer money to persuade voters in one direction or another? And, Griffin's Griffin's defense to that was was basically that a lot of people come to council to learn about municipal issues and that this was an opportunity <laughs> for council to educate people and any stands by uh, that role of council and and basically the is, way this the spending was rolling out is through the use of ward newsletters council members use public money to give updates to their constituents in their ward through these mailers and and there was a desire and a continued desire, and I'm sure we'll see it, um, that that their statements about participatory budgeting would go into those mailers. The attitude, though, is gross. It's like the taxpayers don't know what they're doing. We know better. You should listen to us. And it's just I actually think it'll have the opposite effect. I think it's going to tick people off that they're underestimating the voters. It's exactly what happened in issue one. People got so upset about that, that it got slaughtered, including in key Republican areas. I think what they're doing at council is going to push more people to vote for it. And that's dumb. There should just be an open debate about whether it's good or bad. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We got part two of this, though, because Jerry Serino, the guy behind the effort to turn college campuses into centers for future fascists of America, is sticking his hand into this controversy unbidden. Lisa, what's he trying to do to stop the voters in Cleveland from determining their fate? Yeah, Senator Jerry Serino, the Republican from Kirtland, will introduce a bill today that would prohibit participatory budgeting. budgeting. He says only city officials can decide how to spend budget money. This bill, of course, is targeting Cleveland's People's Budget Amendment that sets aside 2% of the general fund, which is about $14 million for citizens to decide how to spend. Serino calls it an egregious attempt to strip city council of what I think is their duly <laughs> authorized ability. He says it's an affront to council's fiscal responsibility. And he said when he was asked why the state is stepping in, he says the state house needs to step in so other cities don't get this idea and try it. So, you know, it, this is on the November 7th ballot. The bill must be passed, though, on an emergency clause because typically bills go into effect 90 days after the governor signs it. Well, that would put it well beyond the November election. So he's trying to get an emergency clause here. 
I don't think, though, that this would necessarily stop it because the backers of this will argue this is an overwhelming abuse of the home rule uh, constitutional uh, amendment that gives cities the power to govern themselves and that they will challenge this law in court, but it should still go to the voters to decide. So I, I, I'm not sure that this will successfully stop people from voting on it. And if this law were to pass, just like what Blaine Griffin did, I think it would convince more people to pass it. So uh, we should point out, Serino did this on his own. Justin Bibb didn't ask him to do it. Mm -hmm. Nobody in Cleveland asked him to do it. And he's he doesn't even represent Cleveland. Mm -hmm. He's got no business sticking his nose in this. I, I It seems like anything this guy touches, you ought to do the opposite. He's just a megalomaniac trying to exert his will in ways that are almost always the wrong thing to do. Layla, you were suggesting yesterday that this is a clear violation of home rule, yeah. unlike things like gun laws. What were you saying? Yeah, on, on issues like gun control or the minimum wage, things like that, the, the state legislature's argument for bigfooting home rule authority of cities in those cases is that they're trying to avoid a patchwork of laws across the state on those important issues. They want uniformity. And, and I guess I can kind of understand that logic. But in this case, they are just preventing a city and specifically its citizens from making its their own decisions on how taxpayer money is handled. That is not the business of state lawmakers. And I just don't understand how this could pass any kind of judicial scrutiny. Uh, it's, this is this is crazy. Right. He's so far out of line that this is almost unimaginable. And I think even with the heavily right wing skew of the Ohio Supreme Court, they would find that this violates home rule. This is exactly what charter government is supposed to do. People govern themselves. And for him to stick his nose into this, it's it's amazing. And I think it's just because he wants the headlines. You know, he hasn't had headlines. He's like Jim Jordan and <laughs> I don't get Frank Rose. He wants to get on our uh, our Cleveland.com megalomaniac Ohioan scale. Did but it's just out of line. Did Torino explicitly say that he did this on his own, that no one asked him? I, I, I'm... I'm curious about the, the or, origins here. The story said that that Bib, I think the story said Bibbs against it. But mm -hmm. I think I think Bib didn't ask for it. I think Serino said nobody asked him for this. He did yeah, it on his he own. He did. He did. And you wonder why why he has a dog in this hunt. I find that so hard to believe. I mean, so in the past we knew that folks from city government had asked state lawmakers to outlaw an, uh, an increase in the minimum wage in individual cities because the voters were about to decide that issue in Cleveland. And that they, you know, the, the city thought that would be harmful to, to Cleveland to only have a minimum wage of, you know, $15 an hour in Cleveland alone, when then businesses could just move right across the border to, to another city and pay their workers less. And so that, that, you know, to, they, they completely gave away their home rule authority in that case. And I, I just, uh, I, it's just hard to believe that Serena would be working just completely on his own. To, yeah. He's got nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm. But I don't see the Democrats in Cleveland getting into bed with him. I mean, this is the guy behind the education bill right. that would pretty much wipe out our, our higher education system. Professors, students, no one would come here. He's trying to turn them into ridiculous right-wing centers. I mean, it's not. it hasn't gone anywhere. He was on the budget reconciliation committee he couldn't even get it put in so maybe there's enough opposition he can't get it done but you're not going to get into bed with him if you're in cleveland he's like they 
the opposite of Cleveland. So I look, I, I think he's just grabbing for publicity. I'm going to step in and how dare the cities, how dare the citizens of Cleveland think they can govern themselves and decide how to spend their money. You got to remember all power from government emanates from the citizens, not from the state house. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. How is the Cuyahoga County Public Defender's Office helping parents keep their children from being placed into foster care in a new program? Layla. Well, Caitlin Durbin brings us this story about a program launched by the Public Defender's Office in 2021 known as the Family Intervention Representation and Services Team. It's known by the acronym FIRST. This is a voluntary pilot program that works similarly to some of the early intervention services that social workers can provide to to prevent formal custody filings. But these caseworkers operate in a way that can help families bypass the child welfare system altogether while getting their needs met. And the idea is to provide early legal representation and other support to families who are at risk of becoming involved with the Division of Children and Family Services or may already be involved. But the goal is keeping families together without formal juvenile court involvement or putting kids in foster care. So first identifies and corrects the underlying issues that lead families to social service involvement in the first place. That might mean helping them with expulsions from school or accessing individualized education plans that make it easier for them to to, function well at school or providing legal services related to evictions, protection orders. And, you know, getting food or Medicaid benefits so that families can support themselves. They could also be dealing with housing or utility assistance and groceries, gas, clothing, all that stuff that could lead to accusations of neglect that would then take a family deeper into their involvement in this with the system. First, could also help parents find childcare resources or substance abuse counseling, whatever they need to avoid their family falling apart, basically. There was one mother who shared with Caitlin her experience with the program, and she said her sons received faster access to behavioral health counseling, and they were able to transfer to a more supportive school where she said their grades and their attitudes and attendance all improved. And this program helped them get bus tickets and school supplies and clothes, shoes, groceries. And even after they kind of graduated out of this program, the caseworker still helped her find stable housing. So it sounds like a terrific program that was there was a, a gap in the in the way services were running that this really met the need and it should be scaled up more resources should be devoted to helping families when they can still be helped. I I got to tell you though when I read this story I thought isn't this what DCFS yes. is supposed to do? I mean, what this seems like a workaround for something that's not happening that should be. And I get it that DCFS's chief job is to keep kids safe. But one of the best ways to keep them safe is to keep them in their homes in a safe environment, not put them into foster care where things can get dicey. So you would think that DCFS 
would do this stuff. I, and instead, they're ceding the authority to the public defender's office, which doesn't do this. The public defender's office, their job is to provide counsel to people who can't afford to defend themselves. It's got nothing to do with keeping kids in the home. I just, this seems backwards to me. I know. I, it, it, that actually occurred to me as soon as I read the story as well. Like, wait a minute. I thought this is what county social workers, you know, this was the first step when they come into contact with families. But it's I, I'm guessing that this kind of meets families earlier in that continuum before they're more deeply entrenched and already kind of marching toward a bad outcome. And, you know, but it is amazing how much good this team, which began with three attorneys from the public defender's office and a social worker and a parent advocate and about $136,000 in federal funding, they've done so much good. They've served 129 children from 71 families living in mostly low-income parts of Cleveland. And, you know, the majority of the kids faced having to leave their homes and their parents and possibly siblings because of these non-life-threatening concerns related to their education, mental health, or housing stability. And this small team from the public defender's office really turned it around for them. Yeah, I get it. It's success. It just doesn't seem like this is the way to go. It seems like you're getting very disorganized. What's next? Housing court is going to start handle felonies? I mean, it just doesn't <laughs> make sense to me that that the people we fund and charge with dealing with children are, are ceding this to an agency that defends criminals who can't afford lawyers. I, I mean, just, it's odd. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Hey, Lisa, what's the best university in Ohio, according to the latest rankings from U.S. News and World Report? It is Ohio State University, which came in number 43 overall for national universities, and that's up six places from last year. And they actually flip-flopped with Case Western Reserve University. So Case was at 44 last year above OSU, but now they're below OSU by 10 points. They're at number 53. The top three universities are the same as last year year, Princeton, MIT, and Harvard. Um, among public universities, Ohio State was number 18. Among private universities, Case Western Reserve was at number 31. And then they looked at several different, you know, rankings. The top regional universities, J John Carroll University was number three in the Midwest. Baldwin-Wallace University was in a tie for number six. And in the top liberal arts colleges, Kenyon was at 39, tied with Denison. And then Berlin College Conservatory was at 51. My alma mater and Layla's as well, College of Worcester, was tied for 75th or top Ooh. liberal arts, right? <laughs> <laughs> Go fighting Scots. That's right. <laughs> it's nice to see, though, that the publicly funded university is number one in the state. That That's kind of a, a cool change. You know, it's incredible. A friend of mine who teaches high school here um, has told me many times that in recent years, Ohio State has become so selective that it is very difficult to get into Ohio State, that even students who have above a 4.0 are often waitlisted there. Hmm. And I'm dying to know, I feel like maybe we should do a story about this. How did Ohio University achieve that in quite, in quite a short period of time? Because, I mean, all right, maybe not that short. When I was going to college, <laughs> which was not <laughs> that short time ago, but, uh, you know, Ohio State was kind of one of those standard, you know, state schools, you know, if if you couldn't get into yeah, your top right. choice, you'd go there. Right. Um, and so I'm, I'm so curious to know, how did they be, you know, change their reputation into this incredibly selective university that people are, are just, you know, waiting on lists to get into? Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Courtney, this will probably be your last question because you got to get to an interview. But 
This is an outrage story. How much does Cleveland propose to charge for parking with the new meters? And what will that say to people who are thinking about heading downtown? Yes. So last night, city council passed this whole package of of basically an overhaul to the city's parking rates. And it isn't kind of your traditional, what we've seen in Cleveland in the past is council would set like a specific rate. 50 cents for neighborhoods per hour, 75% cents per hour in University Circle, and a dollar per hour downtown. This is definitely a, a little bit more flexible of a pricing strategy than we've seen in Cleveland before. So we don't know the final numbers of what hourly parking will be. And honestly, it'll in some ways, in some places, change based upon demand, or at least that's the plan that Mayor Bibb intends to pursue when he gets this whole new parking technology in town that kind of goes hand in hand with this parking rate overhaul we saw through. So downtown, now there is an upper limit on what Bib will be allowed to charge downtown per hour. And that limit is $8. So he's capped at going to $8 per hour. However, parking downtown it's, you know, the way his administrators were describing it, it's not going to be $8 an hour every hour downtown. That's the cap. That's what it could raise to um, in the most in-demand kind of circumstances. Think multiple ball games going on or a big concert. So, you know, we don't know what the final rates are going to be for just the standard everyday hourly rate downtown. But it will be dynamic. The administration is kind of thinking that maybe it'll be like a dollar fifty for the first couple hours, and then if parkers want to stay later, the the rate will flex up to perhaps three dollars an hour for the third and fourth hours they're parked there. So this is going to be a dynamic pricing model. Folks are going to have to get used to it. Bib and his administration down at City Hall is going to have to figure out basically based on market demands, where those rates are going to fall on a day-to-day basis. But outside of downtown, you know, we're going to see parking rates. They've got a cap of $4 per hour. Again, that's probably not going to be the everyday rate, right? But that's that's kind of the wiggle room he has to flex up based upon demand. Now, as part of this overhaul, we're also going to see an option for parking enforcement on weeknights and on Saturdays. Um, across the city. Parking will remain free in most of the city on Sundays, but downtown they will have the ability to start charging and enforcing on Sundays. So a lot remains to be seen. We'll have to see kind of how this plays out in the real world, but those are the parameters. Last time this all came up, Frank Jackson was, I think, the city council president, and he stopped it because one, he didn't want to pay to force city residents to pay higher money, and two, he thought that charging on nights and weekends and raising the price would hurt downtown businesses. And I don't see how it won't. Look, people will pay it to go to the Browns game. They'll be angry about it. Eight bucks an hour at the meter will not make them happy. But I think it's going to turn people off. You can go to any restaurant in the suburb, park near the door, not pay for parking, not worry about getting shot and and go to fine restaurants. This, I think, is going to hurt restaurants. I was surprised the downtown councilman is in favor because he wants the parking spaces to turn over. What happens if you get them to turn over and nobody comes downtown because you're making it so prohibitive for them? You know, I I will say your your concerns here are the exact polar opposite of Carrie McCormick's, who represent the downtown. He says the way it stands now is residents who, who know that there's no enforcement over the weekend grab a spot on Friday night and don't move their car all weekend. And that means people who want to go to restaurants don't have anywhere close to park. So actually, 
quite the opposite is his point of view. He thinks this will encourage visitors to downtown business. It is worth noting that encouraging turnover like this is kind of why cities started doing parking meters in the first place. So it does kind of stick with that longstanding, you know, uh, philosophy. All right. We're going to try and query the public about what they think about this. So we'll come back on it. Courtney, you got to go. You got an interview in one minute. Thanks for participating today. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Consumer reporter Sean McDonald has such a way of writing his stories that they have become regular fixtures of this podcast. Speaking of fixtures, did Sean, in his deftly written and humorous story, find that using a bidet saves money in the long run with less reliance on tissue paper? Well, toilet paper, Chris. Tissue paper would be a poor choice for this purpose. <laughs> That's for gift bags. It's for gift bags. <laughs> It's very rough. Uh, But Sean clearly loves his bidet. There's no question. This is what he he chose to write about this week. He says in his column that he has traveled without it and he knows what a difference it makes in his life. But that said, he set out to objectively determine whether using a bidet actually saves you money on toilet paper. He began with an estimate from online sources that said a person uses anywhere from 13,000 to 20,000 sheets of toilet paper a year and that generally a bidet cuts back on 75% of toilet paper usage. That, he said, tracked with his own experience. So by Sean's math, the average person spends anywhere from 60 bucks to 90 on toilet paper each year. And if you can cut out 75% of your toilet paper usage, that's a savings of $45 to $67.50 by using a bidet. And that's per person. So each member of your household who uses the bidet compounds the savings. And Sean refutes the claim that the extra water use from a bidet would take the place of the toilet paper cost. He says the bidet's water usage is actually negligible, about one-sixth of a gallon per use. Each toilet flush uses 1.6 gallons, just to put that in perspective. And water and sewer bills deal with units that are each equivalent to more than 7,400 gallons. So this is a really minuscule amount of water that's consumed each time you use it. In his column, he, he gets into the weeds of how he calculated all of his cost savings right down to which brand he used in the calculation and how many sheets people use in a roll. He says, you know, about 13,000 to 20,000 sheets uh, each person uses. So then he goes on to offer advice on choosing and installing a bidet. I won't spoil the rest. You've got to go read it for yourself. It's really hilarious column. Although but you- he did have a comment for his colleagues about the fact he was writing about a bidet, right? Where he- <laughs> yes. He, he warned his colleagues that, uh, that that trying to get him to share any more about his, his toileting behaviors is, is an HR concern. <laughs> <laughs> and, he won't, and he won't address any of the comments that come in that uh, that been doing. It's, a, it's very well done. But there's I, a gender I, gap there, though, because women use much more toilet paper than men by default. So I don't know. I That's what I kept thinking when I read the story. I said, if it had been a woman, it would have been more interesting to me. <laughs> oh, I didn't even think of that at all. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, men use a fraction much toilet paper as women do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll have to have a woman address the story. <laughs> Wow, we have only addressed seven (laughs) stories today, but we are out of time. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to Courtney for participating. Thanks, everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back on Wednesday. 